uh, on Palm Sunday, if you were here, we noted how the worshipful words of the people who were shouting, singing, laying down their garments, laying down palm branches for Jesus, giving him a royal welcome into Jerusalem, their words really outstripped their understanding. They, they really didn't understand what they were saying. They were saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other, in other words, their words amounted to a claim of Jesus' Messiahship. They were saying, this, the word said, this is the Son of David. This is the promised king who will establish 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is the, this is the son that God promised David, the descendant who would establish the throne of God's kingdom on earth forever. But the people who were singing that, it is from the 118th Psalm, they were just singing something that would be traditionally sung and said at that time of year. And you can understand how that would happen. How many traditional songs do we sing at certain times of year, the meaning of which well escaped many of the people who are singing the words? Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. How, how many people sing that during the Advent season and they would have trouble articulating the doctrine of the Trinity, which is in that, it's in that phrase, the doctrine of the Trinity, the, the doctrine of the humanity and, and the deity of Christ and the incarnation, they're there. How many people sing Jesus our Emmanuel that really couldn't say, why is Jesus called Emmanuel? Why is, our, why is he our Emmanuel? Most of you know that, probably all of you. But not everybody. So you can see how people would be singing something traditionally sung and, and without understanding the significance. And we know they really didn't understand the significance because when the people came into Jerusalem and people there, what's all this fuss about? Who is all this fuss about? What's going on? Uh, Matthew 21 says, this is the prophet Jesus. This is what they said. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Of course, he was more than that. He's the one to whom all of the other prophets point. He's the subject of all of their ministries. Uh, he was the one that they looked to. So beforehand, what were they saying? They, they, they didn't know quite what they were saying. They were saying more than they understood. More than they understood. And it had to be that way. God made it that way. Jesus said, you know, people who did understand, the enemies, critics of Jesus said, make them stop, make them stop. Don't you hear what they're saying? He said, yes, I hear what they're saying. One of the things he said, if they were silent, the stones would cry out. There has to be true words of worship said on this day, even if the people saying them don't understand it. God made witnesses out of the uninformed there. Because it had to be. God did not leave himself without a witness on that day. He provided the witness through people who didn't understand really what they were saying. The most, probably the most famous case of something like this happening is Caiaphas. You know, the high priest Caiaphas who said it is better, you know, he's contemplating you know, what to do with Jesus, the Jesus problem. He said, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas, the high priest. He didn't mean it the way God meant it when God caused those words to come out of his mouth. <laughs> he meant something different. 
he only meant, this is what Caiaphas meant, and you, you, can, you know this, but just to, just to put a point on it, if we just eliminate this one person, if we can just eliminate this one troublemaker, the nation will be spared a rebellion against Rome that Rome would certainly crush at the cost of many, many lives. So it's better for us just to take out this one person, that this one person should die, than that a whole lot of people, hundreds, maybe thousands of people, would die if we let this run its course. But the way he put it, left her own, he had the, these are the words come out of his mouth. It's better for, for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. The way that he put it left it open for another meaning. That God intended in his words. This is, this is from John 11. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also get to gather into one the children of God scattered abroad. I think Caiaphas would probably say, "What I, re- I said all that? I said all that, but he did say it. He did say it. During these, God made a witness out of him. He's ignorant of it, but God makes a witness out of him because at this these crucial times, you know, when people don't understand what's going on, God provides witnesses through people who are ignorant of what's really going on, and not only ignorant, hostile. In, in many cases. We see God doing the same thing, providing witness through unwilling instruments at the crucifixion of Jesus. And I want to I point out just three, three instances, and just it's in two verses in Matthew 27, but I'd wanna, I want to read the whole context, or you know, enough of context where you can get, a, get the bigger picture. Matthew 27. And I see some of you turning your Bibles. I'm going to start in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, They divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests, with the scribes and elders, mocked him, saying, He saved others. 
He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The first unintentional witness, strongly put, is the statement of the religious leaders in 42, verse 42. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Now, what do they mean by that? What do they mean by that statement? They mean that Jesus certainly cannot save others. He can't save others. Their, their meaning is that the man, a man who is powerless to save himself is in a poor position to save others. He can't do anything to help himself. That's their meaning. They say, look at him. You know, the, the meaning of what they're saying is, look at him. Look at him. Suffering. Humiliated. Condemned to die. He's, how can he save others? He cannot even save himself. That's what they mean. Even the passers-by got in on the act. You know, three verses before. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. And their meaning is the same. They pick, they, it's the same as what the pre, chief priests, the, the, the scribes and elders are saying. The one unique Son of God ought to be able to save himself. How could, how could he... How could this happen to someone who is who he said he was? Such grand claims he made. Destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. That would be harder than delivering yourself from this, from this calamity. Destroy the temple, rebuild it. It's a laugh. What a laugh. He's a fraud. But still... So the passers-by, they're in on it too. But it's interesting to me that the Lord leaves it to the priest, the religious leadership. He leaves it to them to, make it, to come out of their mouths with this straightforward declarative statement, He saved others. He cannot save Himself. They say it straight out. Those are the words that come out of their mouth. So they, it wasn't what they meant. This isn't what they meant. But the words bear a true meaning they didn't intend. It is absolutely true that he saved others. 
They mean to say, they're saying, he saved others so-called, he didn't really. What a joke, he saved others. He can't even save himself. So they're saying he didn't save others. But it's true. What they say is true. He saved others. He forgave sin. He proved his authority to forgive sin by removing the effects of sin and healing all kinds of diseases. He even, he even raised people from the dead. Certainly he saved others. But it's also true, the next part of what they say is also true. He cannot save himself. Well, how can that be true? I mean, didn't Jesus admonish Peter just, you know, the Gethsemane? You know, when Peter came to his defense, he admonishes Peter. He says, do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? You say, Peter, put away your sword. You know, that's, no, you think I need you? And did he not say, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord? So how can it be true that, that he cannot save himself? It's true in this way. It's true in this way. He cannot save others and save himself. It can't be done. He cannot save others. If he's to save others, he cannot save himself. He couldn't save himself and still save you, still save me. It couldn't be done. This is, this is what the agonized prayers of Gethsemane are about, right? Jesus, Jesus' desire to, to save himself and his desire to fulfill the Father's will and save us. You know, they come head to head at Gethsemane, don't they? What's he choose? Save others. Not himself. Save you. Save me. Not himself. Not himself. The only way he could save others was by not saving himself. I read it this time with the Lord's Supper. We usually use a different verse. We use Matthew 26 this time. I'll read it again. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. No pouring out of Christ's blood. No forgiveness of sins for many. He saved. It's absolutely true what they say. And God provides this witness of these, <laughs> these ignorant, unbelieving, hostile Witnesses, God puts a word in their mouth and they say something absolutely true. He saved others. He cannot save himself. The second unintentional witness, also in the same verse. Also a statement of, of Israel's religious leaders. He is the king of Israel. Of course, what they mean by that, he's not the king of Israel. They say, he's the king of Israel, so-called, so he says, supposedly, allegedly. But they mean, no, he's not the king of Israel. You can see it in the context. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. In other, but you know what the tone of this is? But we're not holding our breath. That's not going to happen. If he was really, here's their meaning. 
If he was really the king of Israel, if he's really the promised son of David who will establish God's kingdom on earth forever, this would never happen to him. God wouldn't let it happen to him. If, if he's really the king of Israel, as he says, this could, not, this could not happen. Even now, even now, God would deliver him. But, you know, he, he won't. He won't. Because he's not who he claims to be. It's Jesus, not who he claims to be. This, this is, but they say, what comes out of their mouth? He's the king of Israel. You know, this is the charge that, that, uh, against Jesus that the Romans could get behind. You know, they could care less about religious questions, about who he is, the prophet, and he's the son of God, or if he could forgive sins and all of that. But this is the one they get behind. A rival king to Caesar? A challenge to Caesar's authority? Well, it becomes, it becomes the rationale for Jesus' crucifixion. It's the charge that will count with the Romans. It's the one that will stick as far as the legal system goes. The Jews, the, the Jewish leaders, they were ready to crucify him for blasphemy. Well, the Romans didn't care about that, blasphemy. But they cared about this charge. That he says he's a king. Pilate had a Sign. By the way, the sign that Pilate put over, over the head of Jesus on the cross, it didn't say he's the, he said he's the Son of God, you know, or he uh, he claimed the authority to forgive sins. What's he put? This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. This is what that that whole the reason I read that context, you know, starting so early in Matthew 27, is that's this is the whole thing about Jesus suffering at the hands of the Roman soldiers. They were mocking Jesus as king, some king, some king. They put a scarlet robe on him in a mockery of royalty. They, 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 they pressed a crown of thorns on his head. Imagine, a king needs a crown. You're a king, right? You need a crown. Don't have a crown, we'll get you one. We'll make one. The reed, that's the reed. That's the, re, that's the significance of the reed that somebody pressed into his hand. It's like a king's scepter. King needs a scepter, but it's a ridiculous scepter, isn't it? Then they grab it from him and they beat him with it. It's, it's ridicule. And the whole... And that whole scene with what Pilate and the Roman, the Roman uh, motivation for crucifying Jesus is this. This is what happens to rivals to Rome's power. Let this, be, let this man on the cross, let him be a lesson to all of you Jews and anyone else who presumes to challenge Rome's authority. But it falls. So the, you know the Roman soldiers went in, Pilate, same thing, but it falls to the religious leaders to put the absolutely plainest sense of it. They mean the opposite, but the words that come out of their mouths, as God would have it, He is the King of Israel. Which, of course, is absolutely true. 
It's what Matthew's all about. Matthew is about Jesus being the Matthew chapter 1. How's it start? This is the genealogy, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Son of David. He's the king. He's the promised king. Matthew's the only gospel that includes the story of the Magi, right? The, you know, the, the Christmas story, the wise men. Why is it only in Matthew? Why does Matthew put the fine point on it? Well, who did the Magi come to seek? Chapter 2, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, as Matthew of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And by the way, the Magi are non-Jewish people. They were Gentiles who had come to seek out and worship the king of the Jews. Jesus' authority as king, this is Matthew as well, extends beyond the Jews, beyond Israel. He's the king of all. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the king of all creation. He's the king of Caesar. He's the king of Pilate. He's the king of all those soldiers who were mocking him and beating him. Matthew ends famously with the Great Commission. You remember how the Great Commission begins? Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And I'm with you always. Behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Matthew is, he's the king. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And God in his sovereignty he makes witnesses out of Jesus' enemies, and this is what comes out of their mouth. He, I know they didn't mean it. I know I'm taking it out of their context. But here's what he makes them say. Here's what God makes them say. He is the king of Israel. One more, again from the lips of these same leaders. Next verse, verse 46. He trusts in God. He trusts in God. Oh, let's see. I think I gave you the wrong verse, but he says, He trusts in God. Verse 43, that's right. He trusts in God. By which they mean, Jesus' faith in God is misguided. It's, he, God is not with him. That's what they mean. He trusts in God, so-called, supposedly. If he's trusting in God, it's not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob he's trusting. It's a God of his imagination. He doesn't, he doesn't know him. And you can see that in the context of the verse. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. And you see their reasoning. If he's trusting... In the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if he's who he says he was, if he's God's unique son, if he's the Messiah, if he's the king of, of Israel and the king of all creation, God would honor that. He would reward it. 
He would rescue him. He would deliver him from this awful fate. But God won't deliver him. This is what they mean. God won't deliver him. Because this man has nothing to do with God. Our God. He's a fraud. And they mean to say, you just watch. I mean, let's see what happens. But you, you just watch. God is not going to do anything for this man. He's suffering, he's humiliated, and he's going to die. And that, in their reasoning, gives the lie to all of his grandiose claims of who he is and what he came to do and what he will do, his claims of being in unique relationship with God. They say it's, it's, it's all a fraud. But the way that they put it, in God's sovereignty, in God making these men unintentional witnesses to the truth that had to be spoken that day, just like on Palm Sunday, lest the stones themselves cry this out, they utter a truth. He does trust in God, and his trust in God will be vindicated. You know, when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think we should read that with every bit of emotion that we can put into it, that we can imagine it. But it is not a failure of Jesus' faith. It isn't a failure of Jesus' faith. He's quoting the first line of this 22nd Psalm. One of the most amazing messianic prophecies in the whole, in the whole Bible, in the whole Old Testament. And, it takes, and that 22nd Psalm takes us right to the cross. It's a, it's a Psalm of the cross. Let me, let me read, you know, it starts, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But let me read some other things, and you'll recognize, you'll recognize the cross here. You, you know, you and I who live on the, we're blessed to live on the side of history that we do. We can look back on these things and see what happened and see how many of these prophecies were fulfilled. But let me read a few from the, a few verses from the 22nd Psalm. Verse 6, I am scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He, listen to this verse. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. I, I wonder when it was or if it ever dawned on the religious leaders that when they were standing there at the foot of the cross saying these exact same words that they were quoting the 22nd Psalm. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Psalm 22. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Verse 14. I am poured out like water. The Messiah says. We know now from the cross. All my bones are out of joint. 
My heart is like wax that is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Isn't that amazing? They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Hundreds of years before the event. So when Jesus quotes the first verse of the 22nd Psalm, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is not only an expression of his anguish, which it is. Honestly arrived at. But it is a personal identification still yet with the suffering Messiah of the 22nd Psalm. It's as if he says from the cross, I am he of whom King David wrote. The 22nd Psalm, which is about me, is being fulfilled before your very eyes. I do trust in God. And He will vindicate me. Can you hear? I'll I'll finish just reading the end of that 22nd Psalm, a few of the verses, and see if you can hear this uh, hints of the vindication of resurrection to come. From you, this would have been in Jesus' mind, not just, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he said, from you, God, comes my praise in the great combination, the congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before Him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. None of that stuff can happen if Jesus stays dead. As Jesus suffered and died on the cross, it seems doubtful to me that there were any who truly understood the significance of what was going on. Truly and really and in in as deep a way as you can. But God provided witnesses even if they didn't realize that God was speaking through them. Thank God if you've been given ears to hear. To open your heart to hear. Jesus saved others Put yourself in there. Me, you. And therefore he could not save himself. What a price Jesus paid.
to save you, to save me. How, 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 would you, how can you turn away from such a gift obtained at such a great price? Knowing that we were ransomed, Peter says, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And this one who was given for you is the king, not only of Israel, not only of the Jews only, but, but of all mankind, all creation. He, Jesus doesn't just come to you hat in hand, hoping to give you something and hoping you'll receive it. He comes with the authority of a king. And you bow the knee to him or you reject him. Either for him or against him. The, the savior part of Jesus can't be peeled off from the king part of Jesus, from the Lord part of Jesus. Bow the knee. For he's, he's your king. Not just in worship, but in how you live. How you think, how you behave. And make no mistake, though our focus tonight, I think is where it should be, on a cross of, of pain and of humiliation and of really outrageous crime against God and sin. Vindication is coming. He did trust in God. God did deliver him because he did delight in him. Come Sunday, it'll be clear that he's everything he claimed to be. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's the only name given under heaven by which we must be saved. He's the only one who can deliver you or me from sin and death. He's the one whose death has opened up the way into God's presence, the curtain torn from top to bottom. He's, the, he's our access to God now. He's the only reason you can bow your head and and say words to God and know that they go into God's presence and He hears you. He's the one into whose hand the Father has given all judgment. He's the one with whom we have to do. Vindication is coming. Heavenly Father, May all of that which was lost on so many at the central event in all of human history be lost on no one here tonight. May each heart respond even in an understanding appropriate way, in an age appropriate way, every heart respond with humility and faith at the astounding truth that the sinless and ultimately worthy Jesus came to save the sinful and unworthy rather than himself. May we bow the knee to him as king in worship and in the way that we live. May we know from the core of our beings that God has vindicated and validated and verified, made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom we crucified. We pray in his holy name. Amen.